Take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And in just a moment, we'll look at Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53 should be between chapter 52 and chapter 54. I love the Old Testament. I hope you do too. I read it daily and uh, I love to read through the Old Testament. I'm right now, I've just started 2 Samuel and I just love the, the chapter. It's hard to beat a lot of the Old Testament chapters. I mean, it's hard to beat the very first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you don't believe that verse, you probably don't believe the rest of the Bible either. But uh, I believe that verse. I love the second chapter, Genesis 2:24, when it talks about marriage. For this cause, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's why we believe that marriage is exclusively one man and one woman for all of life. There is no other legitimate marriage in God's eyes. And then Psalm 23, how are you going to beat or the, the, the psalmist, when he said, help me, what did he say? Can you quote it? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We're better together when we try to say scripture, right? <laughs> Amen. And then I love 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray... Seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. But when it comes to Christ, there is no better text in the Old Testament than Isaiah 53. It talks about his death. It talks about his resurrection. It talks about his life as well. And that's what I want us to study today. And many people call Isaiah chapter 53 the gospel according to Isaiah. The gospel according to Isaiah. Notice three things. First of all, according to the gospel of Isaiah, Jesus lived simply. Simply. Don't you miss simple life. Things have gotten so convoluted, so complex. But you know, Jesus tells us we ought to live a simple life. He sure did. Look at verses 1 and 2. In Isaiah 53, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, Jesus, grew up before him, the Father, like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Notice how he starts, verse 1. Who has believed our message? It's very interesting. When Isaiah was called into the ministry, God said, now look, I'm calling you. But the people to whom you preach and prophesy are not going to believe what you say. 
They're not. They're not going to do it. They're just not. In fact, we'll just read it real quick. Isaiah 6, after, well, when he was called, immediately God said, now, go to this hard-headed people and preach to them, but they won't listen. He said, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And by the way, that us is not accidental. That's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's the Trinity right there in the Old Testament. Then I said, here am I, send me. And that's usually all we quote, but there's a lot more. Listen. He said, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but don't proceed. Keep on looking, but don't understand. Render their hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return to be, and be healed. Then he, I said, Lord, how long? Now, you can just imagine. I mean, God said, now look, you're going to preach to a bunch of hard-headed, hard-hearted people, and they're not going to listen. He said, how long is that going to take? How long do I have to do this? I don't want to have that kind of ministry. That's not going to look good. He said, uh, how long? And he answered, until the cities are devastated without inhabitant. God knew the future. Houses are without people and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away. The forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But God always has a remnant. I'm so grateful for this last verse. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it and it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is filled. The holy seed is its stump. God's going to have his remnant. There's always a righteous remnant. But God said, I want you to go and I want you to prophesy to a group of people that are very difficult to deal with. It's a simple message, yet they will refuse it. Their hearts are insensitive. Their eyes and ears are dull. You're going to prophesy until they self-destruct. And then he says in verse 2, I want you to preach about my son who has a simple life. Look at verse 2. He, the Messiah, grew up before him, the father, like a tender shoot. He's describing how Jesus would grow up. Like a root out of parched ground, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Isaiah said, Jesus is a tender shoot. He's like a root out of parched ground. Nothing fancy, nothing austere about the Lord. He's going to grow up in an arid desert area, a region that's like parched ground. He's not going to look like GQ, GQ, whatever that was, GQ. You can tell I don't dress GQ, all right. Got too many Jews and G's in here, all right. He was a common man. He wore common clothes. Jesus was a blue-collar man, just a regular guy. Wasn't fancy. Didn't have a majestic appearance. He was just a simple man among simple people, a simple carpenter, poor his mother was poor. His father was poor. His town, Nazareth, was tiny, thinly populated. He lived a simple life. We don't know about that anymore. 
Everybody wants bigger and better. And they are willing to go into great debt for the future to pay for the present. I think about how weddings have changed. I talked to my grandparents about their weddings and I was amazed at how simple they were. Nowadays, weddings are an event. I mean, hey, proposals are an event. You know how I proposed to Donna? At a area beside the road where you park there, those rest areas there on a picnic table. I had that ring in my pocket and it was burning. So I said, hey, you want to marry me? She said, sure. I said, you want to wear this ring? She goes, ah, like that. Except she said it a lot sweeter. And guess what? We were engaged. No photographers. No, I won't get into all that. I don't want to get in trouble. All right. But anyway, all right. No, I'm not going to go ahead. You go ahead. All right. You say it. I'm... <laughs> That's my brother down there. I know that. Weddings are so elaborate. My maternal grandparents, here's how they got married. <laughs> They're in a wagon pulled by a mule to town. They go to the justice of peace. He comes out on the platform, out on the front porch, and stands there flat-footed. They never got out of the buggy. <laughs> I'm a simple guy, okay? I come from simple folks. And he performed their ceremonies, and they stayed married for close to 50 years. Nowadays, we have all the stuff, but over half of the people get divorced before it's over with. I'm just saying there's nothing wrong with simple. Jesus was a simple person. We don't have to be fancy. We don't have to have the best. We don't have to have all this money. We don't have to have all the stuff. Now, if you've got money, I'm not against you. But I want to tell you something. You're going to have a lot to give account for when you stand before God. You need to live a simple life. If you want to be like Jesus, he was born in a simple town. You don't get more simple than Bethlehem. He had a Simple setting. He was born in a manger. That's a feeding trough. It smelled like a feeding trough. As I said, he had simple parents. Joseph, a carpenter. Mary, a teenager. He grew up in a small, simple town. I was reading this morning in John's Gospel. When they found out that Jesus was from Nazareth, one of the guys says, Nazareth? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth, that hick town of Nazareth? Jesus was a simple guy. He learned a simple trade. He was a carpenter like his dad. He wasn't spoiled rotten. He had to work. He ate simple food. He wore simple clothes. 
He lived a simple life. He called simple men to be his apostles and disciples. Fishermen, regular folks. They were humble, modest, common people. Jesus mingled with simple people, workers, widows, outcasts, folks who had been demonized, sinners. He never owned a home, much less a house on the beach or a lake house. Jesus didn't have a home. He said, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He didn't even have a place to be buried. He had not, he, Jesus did not even go to the folks and pre-prepare and plan his funeral. I mean, if you're just going to be there three days, why do that? So what? No reason to buy. He's going to be there three days. You know what he owned when he died? The clothes on his back. And they gambled for those. And before he died, they were gone. He, he, he literally died with nothing but the nails in his hand. That's all he had. And yet, he was the creator of the universe. Something good about being simple. You can be rich and be a Christian, but Jesus said it is extremely hard. Because once you start making money, it does something to you if you're not careful. And you've got to watch it all the time. Jesus said to his disciples, Matthew 19, Truly I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is hard. Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. I've heard theologians try to explain that and mess that up so bad. What it means is to shove a big, stinky animal through the eye of a needle. That's what it means. All right? Camels are nasty. If you've never been around one, go to Israel sometime and you'll see those things stink. All right? They're big. And Jesus said, you take one of those big animals and shove it through the eye of a needle. It's easier for that to happen than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with people it's impossible, but not with God. All things are possible. Paul said the same thing. In fact, the first time I ever heard Adrian Rogers preach was at Union University, and he preached from this text in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29. For consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise according to the flesh. He's talking about Christians. Not many mighty, not many noble. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. The base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. God chooses simple people to let everybody know that it's not about the person, it's about who is in the person and that is 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at me. Quit trying to impress your neighbor. Quit trying to be fancy. Quit going into debt, buying things that you don't need, you can't afford. Stop all that stuff. Just live a simple life. Just live a, drive a simple car, drive, live a simple life. I'm not saying if you make money, you're a bad person. I'm not saying that at all. But, you know, use that money to help other people. Don't take it all into yourself. He didn't give all that just for you. Help other people, not just your family, but help other people that are hurting. Look around. God will show you. God will give you people to help with. According to the gospel of Isaiah, Jesus lived simply. Secondly, Jesus, according to the gospel of Isaiah, died sacrificially. Now, this is the heart of it. Look at verses 3 through 10. He was despised. Jesus was despised. You want to be a follower of Jesus? There are people that will despise you. And forsaken of men, there will be people who forsake you if you follow Jesus, just like they forsook him. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. You want to follow Jesus? You're going to cry some. You're going to weep some. There's going to be times when your heart is broken like his. Like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. We did not esteem him. Want to follow Jesus? Get ready. A lot of people won't like you very much. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. Want to follow Jesus? You're going to have griefs and you're going to have sorrows, just like him. Yet we ourselves esteem him stricken, smitten of God. Smitten of God. God smote the Lord Jesus Christ. He hit him with all of his power, punishing the sin that he bore in his body. He was afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. There is no cross in any other religion, only Christianity. Pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, chastened for our well-being. Chastening fell upon him by his scourging. I'm not even going to describe how ruthless that was. We are healed. All of us like sheep, we've all gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But God, God, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon Jesus. What a fall that was. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Want to follow Jesus? You'll be oppressed and you will be afflicted. As the master is, so is the servant. Yet he did not open his mouth. Do you remember that? Do you remember when he was standing before Pilate and everybody was surprised because he didn't open his mouth? They were saying that he was a sinner, that he was a wretch. He never defended himself. Do you know why? Because in his mind, he was about to take on the sin of the world. So in God's eyes, he was going to become sin. So they were actually telling the truth. He had committed no sin, but he was going to bear our sin. So he just kept his mouth closed like a lamb going to the slaughter. Miracle of God. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. 
As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Now, how in the world would Isaiah know this? Hundreds of years, inspiration of God. He was buried in a bar tomb. He was assigned with wicked men. He was, he was rich, a rich man in his death. That's the burial in Joseph's tomb. He was between two crosses or two, two thieves when he died because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. That's what happened at the cross. We're about to remember the cross in just a minute with the Lord's Supper. What do we remember? A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He carried our sorrows. He bore our griefs in his soul. I just want to, one more time, read just the verbs. He was stricken, smitten, afflicted, pierced, crushed, chastened, scourged, oppressed, afflicted, slaughtered, taken away, cut off, put to grief, and offered as an offering. You want to follow Jesus? That's what you have to look forward to. But beyond that, and even in that, there can be great victory. But you can't follow Jesus who died on the cross unless you take up your own cross every day and follow him. It is not going to be easy. And look at me. In our lifetime, it's not going to be easy to follow Jesus. There may come a day soon. I pray not, but who knows that we could be enduring great persecution for our faith in Christ. Let's get ready. Let's be ready. How do you get ready? You love the Lord every day. That's how. But it won't be the first time. Jesus didn't die as a religious martyr. He didn't die as a military hero. He died as an atoning, substitutionary sacrifice, the sinless Son of God paying our sin debt as a sacrifice unto God. And we're to be living in holy sacrifices unto God. I love the new songs that are coming out about Jesus. I love the old songs. I love it all. You know, we can get all messed up about music. What kind is the best? You wouldn't want mine. It would all be bluegrass if I had anything to say about it. Donna gets in the car. She says, turn it off. She doesn't even wait for, to listen to it. She knows it's on, all right? Turn it off. I don't want to hear that stuff. Okay. But I love the old hymns, don't you? I love the new songs, too. I love it all. I love this. Up Calvary's mountain, one dreadful morn. Walked Christ my Savior, weary and worn, facing for sinners' death on the cross, that he might save them from endless loss. Father, forgive them, thus did he pray, even while his lifeblood flowed fast away. Praying for sinners while in such woe, no one but Jesus ever loved so. Oh, how I love him. He's my Savior, he's my friend. How can my praises ever find in through years unnumbered? 
on heaven's shore, my tongues, my lips shall praise him forevermore. Blessed Redeemer, precious Redeemer, seems how I see him on Calvary's tree, wounded and bleeding, for sinners pleading, blind and unheeding, he's dying for me. Aren't you grateful? Aren't we grateful that Jesus died on the cross for our sins? Amen. <laughs> Praise the name of the Lord. Jesus lived sinlessly. He died sacrificially. One more thing. Jesus rose supernaturally. He rose supernaturally. It's one thing for Isaiah to predict Jesus' sinless life. It's one thing for him to predict Jesus' sacrificial death. But how in the world, unless it was just what it was, divine inspiration, could a man hundreds of years prior to the incident predict Jesus' supernatural resurrection? And we see it in verses 10 through 12. He changes the tense of the verb from past tense to future tense. Some of the tenses had been present, but now everything is future. What is that? He's looking forward to the resurrection of Jesus. He will see his offspring. He will. Oh, he died on the cross. But don't worry about it. He will see his offspring. How many of you offspring out there like me are glad that he's going to see us? Amen? Amen. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. The good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and he will be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, oh, my servant, will justify the many. How many of you are glad he justified you? Amen? He will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the ransom with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Every one of those he wills is a reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's no message like the message of Jesus. A simple life, a sacrificial death, a supernatural resurrection. Jesus is the Son of God, who is God the Son, who is the only Savior. There's no other way to God except through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's give Him praise right now. Amen. Amen.